This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you all very much for um, coming to the symposium and for staying through uh, this part of the afternoon. It's fair to say you are the bold, you are the brave, you are the true. Um, so the title of this session is um, Race and Capital Punishment. It's uh, mistitled in the program. And there's an awful lot that I could say about this as predicate, but I recognize as well that I stand uh, in between you and uh, the reception, or to put that another way, I stand between you and alcohol, so I'm not going to um, say an awful lot. I do want to just say a couple of quick things and then uh, turn over to the panel. One, it's clearly the case that the Supreme Court has weighed in on the question of race and capital punishment in a number of cases with which um, many of you are familiar with. The second thing is to note is that the court has weighed in in a way that invokes the flowery language of due process and equal protection and proportionality, and, and none of those terms has meaningfully mitigated the extent to which race continues um, to operate essentially as an eligi eligibility um, for death. And part of what we need to think about, it seems to me, is precisely how and why. So among other questions, we'll be thinking about um, what empirically do we know about race and death. Uh, what specifically do we know about race and death and Latinx uh, communities uh, in particular? How do we think about how race and death and intellectual uh, disability might be at play? Are there doctrinal spaces for intervention? If so, what might that look like? And what might we still need to know empirically? Is it the case that we can sort of empiricize our way out of this? Not sure we can, but, but it's still worth asking the, those hard questions, it seems to me. And we have a terrific uh, panel that will help us uh, do precisely that. So we'll start with Kathleen Grosso. Again, I'm not going to give extended bios. They are in uh, the program. You uh, should be sure to take a look at them. She's a professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law. She does terrific interdis interdisciplinary work on race and criminal justice across a number of different domains, including investigations, including jury decision making, and including the death penalty. So work today uh, will focus on um, California specifically from what I understand. Uh, looking at over 20,000 um, uh, cases and thinking about what space there might be to challenge the constitutionality of uh, California's death penalty practices. Then we'll move on to Sherilyn Johnson, um, my uh, co-conspirator, who is also a professor of law at our Cornell um, law school. She has done work on the death penalty for quite some time as a litigator, as a scholar, and as a social policy advocate. Um, she'll be thinking about race and intellectual disability. It's a paper, a paper on which is working with a series of collaborators as well. Uh, we'll then move on uh, to Professor Urbina, who is a professor of criminal justice in the Department of uh, National and Behavioral Sciences at Sol Ross uh, State University in Del Rio, uh, Texas. He has written extensively on race, criminal justice, and the Latinx um, experience, uh, looking as well at the extent to which we might need to think about citizenship and immigration status and education in the context of thinking about um, the death penalty. He'll also ask questions about geography, about social control, 
um, and about immigration, again, as factors that we might want to um, take into account. And then we'll end with Sharad Thaxton. So Sharad is um, a professor of law here at uh, UCLA. Um, he is known as the other black guy on the faculty. Um, so, <laughs> so there are two of us. I am one. He is the other one, so now I think I've empirically demonstrated that. Um, uh, he uh, was a uh, criminal defense lawyer working in the Capitol Habeas Unit here um, in Los Angeles, is also uh, a really terrific uh, criminologist and has done work, um, both doctrinal work, theoretical work, and empirical work on race and um, the death penalty. So he is working on a paper uh, with myself and uh, Sherilyn Johnson looking at questions of dangerousness and the role that might play inside and outside of the death penalty context. So I'm going to shut up uh, for a minute and uh, turn things over to uh, Professor Grosso. Please join me in welcoming her. And um, I'm presenting this paper and the slides uh, that go with it, but my co-authors Jeff Fagan and Mike Lawrence are here in the back of the room, and also Melissa Castillo, who did a bunch of really hard coding for us. Um, but really, uh, what I'd like to say about this is this is Dave Baldus's project. This project consumed almost all of Dave's time uh, with his longtime co-author uh, for most of the decade before his untimely death in uh, June of 2011. He thought that this was the most complicated study that he did. Uh, Jeff also played a role in this way back then. And uh, we didn't publish these findings before now because uh, habeas proceedings uh, had been filed. They were produced in conjunction with habeas uh, proceedings, and they continued to be uh, pending in court. However, the Supreme Court's decision last year in Hidalgo v. Arizona uh, raised a similar challenge to what this study uh, raises uh, with respect to the Arizona statute. And so at that time, uh, we decided we should push ahead and publish. So there are a couple of papers coming out this year on this uh, really amazing uh, database. So I'm going to tell you uh, uh, about the proper uh, the database. The database is uh, uh, the universe of the candidate cases included all of the defendants convicted of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and voluntary manslaughter between January of 1978 and June uh, 2002. Stratified random sample of 1,900 cases. So they're only 1,900 coded, not all 27,000. Uh, it's stratified by crime of conviction, Population density per square mile of county of prosecution. Any idea why? It's all about LA. Too many cases in LA. And time. Uh, they estimated the, the estimated universe is 27,453. The, co the team coded a 55 page data collection instrument for each case uh, using facts that were uh, reported in probation uh, reports. It took nearly two years to complete the coding, and it took from then until now to clean it up. We're always doing more coding and trying to understand it better. The original study proceeded in two parts. The first part, that was tied to the litigation, examined uh, overbreadth. Uh, Furman, uh, you might recall that old death penalty case, uh, required that state death, death sentencing statutes sufficiently narrow the rate of death eligibility in homicide cases to avoid the risk of capricious and arbitrary application of the death penalty. Uh, the habeas petitioners uh, maintained that the enormous breadth of the California statutory special circumstances, that's their aggravators, the breadth of the death penalty statute combined with the extremely low death sentencing rate uh, fell short of Furman's mandate and therefore made the California capital punishment statute unconstitutional. 
the, the first study, uh, the, first, the first findings from this study uh, answer both questions. One, at what rate are cases death eligible in California? And at what rate do death eligible cases result in a death sentence? So table one and figure one, this is table one, show these findings. Uh, in table one, line one, the, the first line there, uh, reports the first degree murder death eligibility rate under the regime that existed in Georgia at the time of Furman. It's not hard math. Every first degree murder was death eligible. Line two, column C, reports a 95% death eligibility rate for cases that resulted in a first degree murder <coughs> conviction under the California statute as it was in 2008. Uh, the next line down looks at all the cases. So if you combine murder one, murder two, and voluntary manslaughter, you of course get a lower death eligibility rate. These are less uh, culpable crimes. The last uh, uh, line there, line four, reports the death eligibility rate for all factually first-degree murders in the, in the study. This is regardless of the crime of conviction. And it's important to understand this because it, it's a more nuanced understanding of the cases. Here, our coders assess the liability for first-degree murder based on the facts in the case and then assess death eligibility based on the facts in the case. So we have an overall 86% uh, death eligibility. This, kind, this is not meaningful narrowing, and this kind of absence of meaningful narrowing is pretty common where there have been somewhat similar studies done across the country. It's likely that the statutes aren't doing their job. This study is more uh, um, complicated than others that I have seen. Figure one. Uh, shows the second question from the habeas litigation. The figure presents the selectivity of the system during the study period, uh, starting with factually all death-eligible homicides and going from right to left uh, to death sentences. Uh, you can see the flow from left to right without elaboration. The dotted box at the far right reports a 4.6% death sentencing rate among all death-eligible cases, whether or not capitally prosecuted. Uh, this figure is so much farther lower than what the problem was in Furman. In Furman, it was 15 to 20%. So we've got a bigger gap between eligibility and death sentencing here than was already found unconstitutional earlier. But that's not really what we're talking about in this paper. This paper moves on to the next question. This study builds on the first study by asking whether the statute not only fails to narrow, but fails to narrow disparately. Does the statute do an even worse job of narrowing for defendants of some race or ethnicity than others? In this paper, we show that Furman's narrowing jurisprudence has failed and that its overbreadth results in a disproportionate death eligibility by race and ethnicity. This is the first time this research has ever been shown, and it's the only research of its type that I know of uh, nationally. This is it. Uh, so as noted earlier, uh, the study includes 1,900, deaths, uh, 1900 defendant uh, death stratified sample. So table two presents the study sample uh, and weighted universe, sample, weighted universe, uh, by race of defendant. Uh, columns B, C, and D show that black, white, and Latinx defendants compose roughly equal and large portions of the database. Missing race uh, or ethnicity has been a significant issue in this study. The primary purpose of the study, this is not a race study primarily. It was about death eligibility and narrowing. So we've had to try to figure out uh, race. Uh, and one a really important, um, 
uh, originally we had about 18% uh, missing race, race or ethnicity. I should just say, of course, race coding in a study like this is limited by the documents we're coding from. We're coding from parole, uh, probation, I would say the wrong thing, court documents. Uh, what we did to try to make up the gap is kind of sloppy, uh, but it was, uh, uh, I think, the uh, um, generally found to be very reliable. We, we estimated race using uh, census data showing the probability of belonging to one of five racial or ethnic groups among the 1,000 most common names in the census. Uh, the findings that I'm presenting here, presented here used uh, estimations that were 60% confident. That leads to 4% missing, which is kind of nice. I replicated everything I'm showing you with the 95 or 90% uh, confidence matches, uh, and I got the same results. So I, I don't think it's about the missings, uh, what we're seeing here, uh, but I will still be doing more work on that matter. Figure two uh, presents the unadjusted rate at which defendants with each race or ethnicity have each special circumstance found or present. This is called a selection rate. The measurement of interest is the percent of the cases by race or ethnicity that contain facts supporting each special circumstance. Unadjusted means culpability is nowhere, right? This is just counting the plain facts without controlling. For example, in the first set of columns right here, they present the selection rates for special circumstances that the murder was intentional or involved the infliction of torture. The first column reports that 7% of black defendants face this circumstance compared to 13% of white defendants and 5% of Latinx defendants. Note that white defendants in purple have the highest selection rate in only the first set of columns. They also have the highest rate for the multiple victim special circumstance. It's not shown here. Uh, it's a smaller disparity. Black defendants in light blue have the highest selection rate only in the second set of columns. Those are the, col the column that combines the, the felony aggravators for burglary and robbery. So either of those felonies uh, that would cause an aggravator, I'm sorry, a special circumstance. Here, black defendants at 29% face almost twice as high as the rate of Latinx defendants at 15% and 1.5% uh, the rate, 1.5 times the rate of white defendants at 19%. Latinx, I'm going to go a little over. Latinx defendants uh, uh, face the highest selection rates of the remaining three sets of columns. Uh, the third, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, face the highest rates in the remaining three, so the three on that side. Uh, the third and fourth columns present selection rates for two special circumstances that we found in our earlier study to be principally responsible for a significant expansion of the breadth of California's special, uh, capital punishment regime after 1987. The drive-by shooting special circumstance, it's so special. I've only ever seen it in California. And the street gang murder one. Both of these special circumstances impact Latinx defendants at a higher rate than black defendants, 7% versus 4% and 19% versus 12%, and reach no more than 2%, 1 or 2% of white defendants. These special circumstances don't hit evenly. Right? They hit different parts of the population uh, differently. Uh, finally, our, our earlier research showed that the lying in wait special circumstance uh, showed that it expanded the, uh, the reach of the death penalty more than any other uh, special circumstance. And you can see that here, right? It's present in a lot of cases. Uh, uh, the selection rates by race there are closer, but still Latinx are at the highest. I only have two more slides. Uh, first is just this. This one replicates the previous slide, but limits the universe to factually first-degree murder. It seems possible that things would be different when you eliminate the lower, but it isn't. They're the same patterns, the same disparities, uh, almost identical. Uh, and then this one 
shows a, a little bit different analysis. So this set of analysis introduced controls. We specified a simple logistic regression model for each special circumstance. The model defined the special circumstance as the outcome measure and then used a five-level race-purged culpability scale as the control for culpability to try to match apples to apples. We then offered the model three distinct race or ethnic variables, identifying black defendants in one, Latinx defendants in one, and white defendants in one, and then one variable that looked at brown and black versus not. Uh, so we looked at a couple different ways. I then specified the model by removing a variable that was not uh, at least uh, marginally statistically significant, starting from the least significant. So I, I specified backwards, fairly standard procedure for trying to get the model just right. Uh, and what table three presents here is every, so each line is a separate model in, in this table, and it presents every special circumstance in which at least one race variable remained in the fully specified model. Column A lists the special circumstances. These are the same special circumstances you saw on the previous slides. That's not just culpability. They really do play differently. Uh, column C presents the odd ratios. The largest disparity is the drive-by uh, uh, shooting and gang member special circumstances. You can see them there. I won't tell you because I am out of time. I will just tell you that the inclusion of time as a fixed effect didn't matter. This is not about time. Uh, and um, uh, these findings are important. Uh, they matter to our understanding of how capital punishment rolls out in the state. Not just does it not narrow, but who it targets and who it makes feel like a death-eligible person, what crimes look death-eligible, uh, is disparate. So there you go. I'm here today, and by extension, so are all of you, uh, because of Ramiro hernandez Yanis, uh, whom I represented uh, in... Texas District Court and in the Fifth Circuit and in the Supreme Court. Uh, Ramiro uh, was born and raised on a toxic waste dump in Mexico. Uh, he could not read beyond the second grade level. He could not cook food. He could not travel safely by himself. His IQ was measured uh, at 62, 68, and 70. I tell you these things because the Supreme Court decided in Atkins versus Virginia that a person with intellectual disability could not be executed. Now that description that I just gave you ought to say, um, well, how was he executed by the state of Texas, which he was in 2014? And the answer to that, I think, is almost entirely racial bias. So um, there are two pieces, two, three pieces maybe, to finding intellectual disability. One is finding a sub-average intellectual functioning, which is measured by an IQ test. One is uh, the second one is finding significant deficits in adaptive functioning. And the third is onset before the age uh, of 18. So um, Ramiro should have met all of these criteria. Uh, he was actually kicked out of school in the third grade because he could not learn. So there's no question about onset either. So why was it that he was not found to be intellectually disabled and therefore ineligible for execution. The answer to that uh, is twofold. Uh, the Fifth Circuit said, well, one reason might be that there was only one score under Mexican norms uh, that was under 70, uh, only one. Well, now that's true, except the fact is there's only one test with Mexican norms. So there could only be one score. And the other tests uh, on which he also scored below uh, the, the criterion uh, were measured in Spanish, 
were valid tests, uh, but because there was only one with Mexican norms, the Fifth Circuit said that was not problematic. The second reason had to do with adaptive functioning, and that was because an expert testified that the fact that he couldn't count change, that he couldn't cook food, that he couldn't travel by himself, all those things were normal for Mexicans. Now, I'm going to say, uh, quite remarkably, his family was there. His family, his siblings, all testified to that they could do these things, but that he could not. So um, why was that testimony accepted? And I think that's what's, what sort of started me on the thought about why is it different uh, with African Americans than with uh, Latinos. And the big difference I see is that there, were, there are cases that say that about intellectual disability with African Americans. Oh, they just score less on IQ tests, and therefore he's not really intellectually disabled. And those are all reversed by higher courts. But this one uh, was not. So this made me think about, um, well, where there's smoke, there's fire, or maybe uh, where there's fire, there's going to be even more smoke. I'm not sure which way the metaphor goes. But um, so if there were these uses uh, explicitly of intellectual disability sort of gradation for Latinos, finding them not to be intellectually disabled under circumstances that a white defendant would have been found to be intellectually disabled, mustn't there be other cases in which that's going on but no one says it? So um, it's hard to figure out how to measure that. You can't do it looking at the, at the um, intellectual disability decisions because there are just two big selection effects. How do we know whether uh, lawyers bring different kinds of cases when we're talking about Latino defendants and African-American defendants and uh, white defendants? So we tried to, um, to use some names and uh, see whether people would find uh, uh, these are people on uh, subjects on MTurk, uh, would find um, intellectual disability. And what we found was, the first thing we found is that if you ask them, is someone intellectually disabled, and you ask them so that they get benefits, uh, people are much more likely to find the person is intellectually disabled than if you ask them, should they be exempt from the death penalty. Um, but you will notice that we really did not find a very big difference in um, by race, although Latinos do the worst. Uh, worst in the sense that uh, those are the people who are found ineligible. But another thing that was of interest was that we also found people saying things when they explained their decisions, which sounded racially biased. So uh, no rewards for dumb blacks, uh, and that uh, then a reference to uh, Mexican nationality. This made us think, maybe we should try again. Uh, and the other reason we thought we should try again, uh, is that there was huge variation in the names that we used. Uh, it appears that uh, Tomas suggests uh, great intel intelligence. So we thought, okay, maybe we have done this wrong. So this is experiment number two. So then we sort of thought, well, let's just say that they're Latino or black or, um, or white. And then we found that in ambiguous cases, there seemed to be some differences, ambiguous evidence cases, but not in clear evidence cases. And so we thought, well, okay, we're going to try this, but maybe just saying the word black or Latino once was not enough. So here's study number three. Okay, there are the faces. So uh, we picked these faces uh, out of files that make them uh, look uh, 
stereotypical and how people decide to be their stereotypical. So we gave people different choices and those, we looked at 726 subjects uh, who looked at those and this amount of salience made a difference. So uh, when we now look um, at the differences, we find that um, in the very strong evidence cases, there's really very little difference. But in a close case of intellectual disability evidence, we see that whites and Asians are found to be intellectually disabled at a significantly higher rate than Latinos uh, and at a close to significantly higher rate than African Americans. And then I had an interesting thought, which was, so I, this is actually a uh, racially mixed uh, sample of subjects, uh, which was 75% white and about, I think, 15% African-American and then just a smattering of others. And then I thought, well, I wonder what will happen if we look at only white subjects. So what happens when we look at only white subjects is we increase the disparity. So white subjects are yet more likely than the whole group were to find uh, whites and Asians to be intellectually disabled uh, and less likely for both African Americans and Latinos to find them intellectually disabled. So if you're, what you're looking at, so 30%, 7% of white subjects said this is an intellectually disabled person uh, as compared when, when the subject was either African American, when the defendant was either African American uh, or Latino, and when the subject was shown a white or, or an Asian, that's 57%. So that's a pretty big difference. If you think about, it's not only statistically significant, it's also if you think about your chances of avoiding uh, the ultimate penalty, uh, pretty extreme. So um, just want to say quickly, what do I draw from this? So one thing I notice is that the stronger the manipulation of race gets, uh, the bigger the effect gets. So we saw some not uh, significant effects, but some effects uh, when we only gave names. Uh, and then when we give faces, we get more. And the importance of that, of course, is that in a real trial, we're looking at much greater salience for race or ethnicity uh, than we have when we just have one picture flashing up. And this is probably not only true of the defendant himself, but also true uh, of all of his witnesses, or most of his witnesses. The second thing is that um, I, we only see this in ambiguous cases. We don't see this in strong evidence cases. But that would be consistent with almost all of the literature about racial bias, which is that in really ex strong cases, you don't see race effects. It's in the close cases. But of course, it's also the close cases uh, that go to trial. Um, and then uh, I think it's also useful to notice uh, that the effect is stronger when we look at white participants. And so um, this brings me back to the point that I've made numerous times in my research, which is that uh, whites make the worst jurors. So I'll stop there. Oscar Walde once said, a veces podemos pasar los años sin vivir en lo absoluto, y de pronto todo se concentra en un solo instante. Oftentimes we can spend years without living in the absolute and suddenly everything comes together in a single moment. And that's exactly how I feel today. What a privilege to be here. What an honor to be here, to be part of this movement that takes a lot of courage. A lot of courage 
It takes a lot of dedication. It takes passion. It takes heart to put this kind of symposium during a time nationally and internationally of critical, critical moment politically, economically, and socially. Uh, when I received um, the phone call from Sharad to participate in this, in, in this forum, what an honor. Bringing me back where everything started, almost, well, over 20-something years ago, uh, when I published my very first book on capital punishment in 2003. And then it took, then, of course, I left capital punishment for about 10 years, and then 10 years later, I come back to publish my second book on capital punishment. <laughs> but, and then I'm back. But what has happened, though? What has happened? A little history to understand the human element. I came to this country as an undocumented person. And actually I was arrested, well detained in, in certain ways, arrested by the Border Patrol and sent back to Mexico. I actually got to swim the river about four times until eventually I got to settle here in this country. When I got into the educational system, I was confused more than I was. Because they tell me, forget your language. To begin with, I could barely speak Spanish. So there I was without a language. <laughs> then, as I began to read over the years, I found out that I did not find myself. I did not see myself in the books. My story was not there. The story of our communities was not there. Oftentimes, excluded. And a footnote, sometimes marginalized, sometimes outright lies. As I continue on my way towards graduation from high school, there was a pattern. Then I also noticed something else, that most of the authors were white men. Eventually, the line was, I was learning through white male ideology. It was my good fortune that I went on to college, undergrad, master's, PhD. As a student, there I was, very angry. And I'm still angry. <laughs> because this, the school, the educational system that was supposed to have educated me, kept me in total ignorance. Even as I did PhD, I realized that I was educated through white male ideology. Many years later, and to this day, I continue to ask my students, how many books have been required of you? It's a required text. It's a supplemental reading by a Latino author, by a Latina author. One and two focus on our realities, our stories. Excellent books have been written. Excellent articles have been written. Excellent chapters have been written but it's still in comparison to mainstream America is very limited. It is an honor for all of us to be here to provide a balance to the educational system. Over 20-something years ago, I was very excited. And one of the areas was capital punishment. In the context of capital punishment, I made one discovery. And there was what we've been discussing here all the, all the entire day. The exclusion, the marginalization, the silencing of Latinos and Latinas. 
And one of those areas, what some people will call the extreme, the punishment, a last resort, resort, capital punishment. And there was my focus. 20-something years ago. But then I noticed something else that complicated my life even more. Who is a Latino? Do I look like a Latino? Luckily, I don't have an accent. <laughs> of course, Victoria's gone now, right? <laughs> from, the, from earlier today. Who is a Hispanic? Do I look Mexican? But then, the approach, not only the black and white dichotomy, but also the grouping of Latinos. Within the Latino community, the Latina community, we have somewhat neglected the differences, which are, in, in essence, differences of experiences, from Cubans in the area of Miami, Florida, to Mexican-Americans, to Puerto Ricans, to people in, from South America, from Central America. So in the area of capital punishment, my early research, and even now, was to try to who are these individuals? We talk about the data throughout the day today. The coding of the data by, by, by government agencies, from the local police to state agencies to federal agencies. That makes it very difficult to understand who we are and identity, our own experiences. So that's what I've done. And of course, find out, for example, in the context of death penalty, one of the one for this particular paper was find out the exact identity, ethnicity of Latinos who have been executed from 1977 to, to of course, 2018. And what we have discovered was that, of course, of those 127 Latinos, 103 were Mexican-Americans, almost all of them. In addition to that, by the way, very quickly, some of the issues that we found was oftentimes prosecuted, convicted by all white juries, sometimes no competent interpreters. And sometimes the interpreters actually giving advice to the defendant, knowing the judge, you better go ahead and plead guilty to avoid the sentence of death. Mentally ill people, uneducated, poor, with no resources, and of course sometimes undocumented. Violation of civil rights, like Article 36, innocence, lack of resources, and of course, the stereotypes by the media, politicians, and so on and so on. I want to break a little bit the norm, otherwise it wouldn't be me. And for me, it's about the educational system where everything begins. And it is time right now to react. Nationally, there's action by the president and his administration. It is time for us to react. It is time to focus on the educational system. For example, Latino access to higher education. But go beyond there. How do we decolonize the colonial mentality of the system in ourselves? Earlier today, somebody was talking, right? The school to prison pipeline. And Julia Mendoza mentioned the significance. 
it is time that we write our own books. And she has to push and overcome the obstacles of research and the publishing process that Nicole earlier mentioned. We also need to look very closely at the ethnic realities of minorities, of Mexican-Americans and Latinos in general. We need to engage in this more of a message for the younger folks here and those who are watching via television. What are we being discussing here the entire day? So during the, the one minute that I have, we have to begin our own movements, our own initiatives. We need to begin our own radio stations, our own television stations, our own platforms through the new, through, uh, through, uh, through uh, every possible avenue that we can. It is time that we aggressively with strategy, promote of movement, of justice, of equality, of unity, a movement of understanding, a movement of tolerance, a movement of compassion, a movement of changing lives. We have so much information to make us hate and divide, but not enough information to make us unite. But also, finally, a movement for respect and human dignity, a movement for empowerment, the empowerment of the next generations, the empowerment of our communities, the empowerment of this country, if we are to become, continue to be the country of the future. Thank you. Shrad and I are going to present um, uh, the paper on which we're working uh, with Sherry Johnson. And I'll just say a few things, um, and then when it gets hard, turn it over to Sherrod. Um, so uh, broadly articulated, our project in this paper is threefold. First, we want to map um, the ways in which dangerousness, inquiries about dangerousness, figure across different domains of um, criminal justice law. In other words, we're interested in thinking about identifying as many areas as we can in criminal justice adjudication, from the investigatory side all the way to uh, punishment regimes, where there's an explicit or implicit doctrinal or evidentiary inquiry into dangerousness. That's one part of the project. The other part of the project is to map um, empirically what we know about the effects of inquiries into dangerousness, the racial effects, and more specifically still, uh, the racial effects on um, Latinx communities. The third thing we want to think about is whether there's reason to think that inquiries about dangerousness already embeds race. And, and here, our argument is not fundamentally about disparate impact. We're asking instead whether there's something about dangerousness discursively uh, that embeds race. So think about the matter this way. Just as we know that bodies, our bodies, are racially um, uh, uh, significant or, or operate as racial signifiers, so that I can't say, hey, I'm a white guy, that, that doesn't work because my body is racially communicative. Just as we know that geographic spaces operate as racial signifiers, uh, as racial uh, signifiers, um, 
we're wondering about whether dangerousness might operate similarly. So I could ask you, for example, um, welfare queens, who am I talking about? You might not want to answer because it's politically incorrect, but you know. I could say illegal aliens, who am I talking about? Or I could ask a question about quote-unquote terrorists, which is to say each of these terms are racially encoded in ways that speak about particular communities. So the question is whether dangerousness itself as an inquiry embedded in law encodes race and whether it does so in ways that has implications for um, particular communities and here Latinx communities as well. So there's a doctrinal dimension to the paper, again, looking at all the spaces where we're asking about dangerousness. There's a theoretical dimension, thinking about the co-constitutive relationship between dangerousness and race. And there's an empirical dimension, thinking about what all of this might mean vis-a-vis uh, -vis Latinx communities. So the reason we're on this panel in part is because there's a specific way in which inquiries about future dangerousness um, function in the context of the um, uh, uh, capital uh, system, and Schwad is going to speak to that. And before he does, I simply want to uh, do two things. One, I want to point to one particular study, um, which some of you are already familiar with, which is a window on uh, how dangerousness might be embedded in ways that are deeply problematic. And this particular study, again, focuses on African Americans. And the question is whether or not there's anything like this being done uh, with respect to the Latinx community. I specifically asked Vicky Plout um, to join this conference, in part because I wanted her to look in social psychology to see whether or not there are robust engagements around racial um, stereotypicality and in Latinx communities, and the answer is roughly no. But, but here's, at any rate, uh, a study that um, some of you know something about. Uh, let's see. So it's a study that um, includes one of my co-authors and one of um, Sherry's co-authors, it turns out. And the, <laughs> fundamental, and the fundamental question they're trying to ask uh, in this in study is this. Is there a relationship between race and crime or race and dangerousness so that when you're thinking about black people, you're thinking about crime, and when you're thinking about crime, you're thinking about black people? In other words, it's a kind of bidirectionality to it. And the way they did it roughly was to prime subjects. So people are sitting in front of a computer screen, and they're primed uh, with a white male face or a black male face or no face at all. That is to say, they don't know that they've been exposed to these particular images. And the question is what that exposure might do vis-a-vis -vis, um, their uh, conceptions of crime and their conceptions of dangerousness. Um, the way they uh, did this was to have people identify uh, two kinds of objects. Uh, one kind of object is a crime-relevant object like a uh, handcuff. The other is a crime-irrelevant object like an iron. And you all know that's an iron. Typically, students don't, but it is. And so <laughs> the, 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 the question, again, is, um, you know, to what extent does a racial prime affect your capacity to identify these particular objects? And it's a challenge in part because the objects appear before you at different levels of degradability. So if you click for me, um, you'll see that, uh, click again. Um, at frame one, you may not be able to discern, click again. Uh, frame uh, 25, you figure out it's a gun perhaps. Frame 41, I think it is you can see that it's a gun. So at what frame do you identify the gun as the gun? At what frame do you identify the, hunk, um, the um, iron as the iron as a result of being primed with white male face, the black male face, or no face? You get the idea, yes? Uh, so let's just go to the results, click through, click through again. 
quick through. All right, stop here for a minute. So, so these are the results for the crime irrelevant object. And, you know, you don't come to law school to do math, but this is pretty easy to figure out. People are basically identifying the iron at the same frame. So across the three conditions, whether you're primed to the white male face, the black male face, or no face at all, you kind of say it's the iron at roughly 23 slash 24 frames. Click through the other three. And here you see a profound difference. So this is the crime-relevant object, so it's the handcuff or the gun. And I think you see what's going on. With respect to the white prime, it's not a gun, it's not a gun, it's not a gun. It's, okay, finally, it's a gun. So whiteness is inhibiting your capacity to identify the gun as the gun. With respect to the blackface, it's a gun. That is to say, blackness plays a facilitating uh, role. And I, I point to this study just because there are other studies like it where we can empirically demonstrate different kinds of associations between race and dangerousness and race and crime. And again, the question is, what is out there that performs the same kind of intellectual work vis-a-vis -vis Latinx community? We learned this morning that there isn't an awful lot. So there's a, there's, there's, there's a bunch of work that needs to be done um, trying to capture um, these points in part because dangerousness figures so saliently in the context of different dimensions of law. I could tell you a story about how it works in the stop and frisk context, or how it works in the context of excessive force, or how it works in the context of stand your ground, but I won't do any of that. Instead, I want to pivot to Sherrod, who has the really hard task of explaining how future dangerousness works in the capital context in ways that are both expressed and implied. So let me turn it over to you, Sherrod. Thank you. Thank you. You can just stay there. I'll sit here. Yeah, I'll sit here. Uh, thank you, Devin. Pardon me, not Devin, the other black law professor here at UCLA. Uh, Devin did great uh, f framing. It's actually made my job a, a lot easier. Uh, now, those of you who know me um, know that I typically talk about data. And if you've taken a class with me, I typically use slides. And I'm doing none of that today. Um, actually, I'm going to be speaking about the doctrinal dimension, which is part of the project uh, that Devin mentioned, and particularly with respect to future dangerousness assessments uh, in the context of capital punishment and the penalty phase for capital punishment. Uh, I'll try to be brief because I've also been told, in addition to giving me the other black law professor here, I'm also your roadblock to alcohol, and so I don't want to uh, serve that role too long. So as Catherine mentioned when, uh, in her presentation, she began her presentation, approximately 46 years ago, uh, the Supreme Court said death is different Right? Capital punishment is different because of the severity and finality of the punishment. And as a result, the Constitution requires heightened standards for accuracy uh, and fairness. But the court didn't give guidance to um, as to what this heightened standard would entail. Now, almost immediately after the court's uh, pronouncement, uh, states began crafting capital punishment statutes that, among other things, implemented a future dangerousness inquiry that, in theory, and again, I say in theory, would guide your discretion in terms of the implementation of the, uh, the death penalty. Right. Now, as a former public defender and someone who has studied capital punishment and specifically uh, racial bias and capital punishment uh, for 20 years, uh, I can say confidently that the future's, future dangerousness inquiry uh, does serve the exact opposite functions. Now, specifically, I believe the confluence of three uh, main factors makes the consideration of future, uh, future dangerousness also, excuse me, future dangerousness, also called a continuing threat to society. It goes under slightly different names, uh, but it makes that consideration in cases uh, involving Latinx defendants highly susceptible uh, to racial bias. All right? So it's at three, confluence of three factors. 
So now the first, which is based upon interviews with actual capital jurors, is the centrality of the future dangerousness consideration when determining whether or not to impose the death penalty. In fact, it's the second most important consideration next to the circumstances surrounding the crime. And this is even in jurisdictions where an assessment of future dangerousness is not, a requ is not required for the implementation of the death penalty. And I'll talk about variation in the type of uh, future dangerousness regimes shortly. Okay, so the first centrality of the future dangerousness consideration. Uh, the second uh, factor that's important is the very low predictive power of future dangerousness assessments by both quote-unquote experts and jurors. All right? So in, uh, what we know from the best available data at both the state and federal levels, okay, see I lied, I'm talking a little bit about data, but what we know about uh, from the best um, available data uh, evidence with respect to, um, again, the accuracy of future dangerousness assessments, they get it wrong between 90 and 97 percent of the time. Let, let me say that again, 90 and 97 percent of the time. All right? And as several members of our own Supreme Court uh, have noted, when you have such an arbitrary and unreliable system, what that actually does is it provides the space for the influence of racial bias. Okay, so a poorly calibrated system, a poorly calibrated metric, which is shown again by this 90 to 97 percent error rate, right, again, allows impermissible considerations to do work. All right, so that's the second. And then the third, and this is the part I'm going to spend the remainder of my time uh, focusing on, is the extremely lax and uneven um, evidentiary standards and procedural protections governing the future dangerousness inquiry. Okay? And these lax and uneven standards uh, have resulted in Latinx defendants being sentenced to the death penalty, even expressly based upon their Latinx racial identity and its alleged association with future dangerousness. Some of these cases have been, uh, were ultimately reversed, but in other cases, defendants were actually executed. Again, actually executed on explicit reference to the association between Latinx racial identity and future dangerousness. All right. So again, those are the three factors. I think the two are pretty self-explanatory. Again, the centrality of the inquiry and the poor uh, predictive power. But I do want to talk a little more about the rules governing the how future dangerous consideration is animated in proceedings and then what types of evidence uh, is actually considered and the problems with that evidence. So briefly, when we ask how does future dangerous become an issue, and I want to emphasize this is important because the manner in which future dangerous inquiry becomes an issue is relevant to the degree in which anti-Latinx defendant bias infects the inquiry. Right? So there are essentially four regimes governing the manner in which future dangerousness is taken into consideration when juries and also judges, when you have a judge sentencing regime, are deciding whether to impose the death penalty. So one of the regimes we would call, go by different names, but generally you would call a special issue regime. This is, depending on how you count the regime in two or three states, Texas, Oregon, and um, Virginia. And so I'll move quickly through these because I told my time was short. Um, but I'll also take a little bit of co-organizer's prerogative and maybe take a little more time. Okay, um, but in these regimes, essentially what happens is an assessment of future dangerousness is required in order for a sentencer to impose uh, the death penalty or sentencing body, again, if we're talking about jurors. So it's a special issue uh, regime. We also have an aggravating circumstances uh, regime. Okay, and then really we have that take explicitly take into account uh, future dangerousness, but don't make it a necessary condition 
to impose the death penalty. So you have several jurisdictions uh, in that regard. And then we have what we call a non-statutory aggravating circumstance uh, regime where the future dangerousness inquiry is allowed, but it's not specified in the statute, but it could come in under this other relevant evidence that the sentencer can um, assess with respect to the imposition of the death penalty. All right. And then finally, we have what we call rebuttal jurisdictions, which don't permit the state from introducing evidence of future dangerousness normally, but the state can to rebut a defendant's uh, presentation of evidence that speaks against future dangerousness. And this usually comes uh, in the form of the defendant saying that they should not get the death penalty, uh, they should receive mercy because they would not be a violent inmate. So four, those are the four different uh, regimes. Okay, so then that's the how that comes in. I'll be really brief on uh, the what types of evidence that comes in, but I won't really unpack those. All right, so this can vary across jurisdictions, but generally a censor can, uh, can consider prior criminal history, psychiatric testimony, interestingly not psychiatric testimony solely based upon an assessment of a defendant, but also reading a defendant's record without the expert actually interviewing the defendant. Okay, so that's psychiatric testimony. We can also think about actuarial science. We've got a complex statistical algorithms that try uh, to uh, assess and predict uh, future violent uh, offending. But remember, as I said before, right, the guesses are wrong 90 to 90% of the time. And if you really were to unpack the problems with these evidence, this evidence, um, you would understand why. So I'll just make one note about that evidence. The American Psychiatric Association has filed amicus briefs in capital cases right, saying right, that psychiatric uh, testimony from psychiatric experts it's completely unreliable with respect to long-term predictions of future dangerousness. Hasn't stopped that evidence from coming in. All right. So I'll have to skip over a couple of things, but two last points I want to make. Um, one of the things that's particularly problematic when we think about race is mitigation evidence, again, evidence that tends to, again, uh, invoke a mercy, uh, such as youthfulness of the defendant or coming from a uh, disadvantaged uh, background functions both to reduce defendant moral, defendant's moral culpability, right, but also can increase the likelihood that the sentencer views the defendant as a future danger, all right? And we can understand that the weight that's given whether to reduce the moral culpability or increase the, um, the perception of risk of future dangerousness is going to be highly contingent upon race. And what we know outside of the capital context is that Latinx defendants and African-American defendants are much less likely to benefit from the types of mitigating evidence that white defendants benefit from, okay? Particularly in a youthful context, right? Another article said that the cost of being young and black or Latinx, all right? Now, I'm going to wrap up be, before Roop throws something at me. And so what I want to say, so what does all this mean, right? So what does all this mean and how should we move forward? Where I always say, okay, what's the solution? What's the payoff? Um, I started my, my remarks by saying that the court has held death is different, right? And the imposition of the death penalty requires the utmost care and caution, right? The utmost care and caution. But what we need to ask or re-ask at a fundamental level is death is different from what, right? The origin story for capital punishment, especially for Latinx and African-American defendants, is rooted in racially motivated lynchings. Okay, that's the origin story, all right? In fact, many people consider capital punishment legal lynchings. Uh, the title of Charles Ogletree's and Austin Serrett's edited volume captures this very succinctly, from lynch mobs to the killing state, race and death penalty in America. All right? 
Now, unfortunately, emergency prevented one of the panelists, uh, Nicholas uh, Villanueva, from joining us today. But his brilliant work on mob and vigilante violence against Mexicans from uh, 19, uh, excuse me, 1848 to 1928 in the Texas borderlands suggests that thousands of Mexican men, women, and children were killed. Now, again, the, the best surviving records, he was able to clearly document about uh, five, over 500 cases. But other scholars have documented more than 870 cases right, of lynchings of Mexican-Americans across uh, 13 Western states in the Southwest after the Civil War. And other research suggests that more than 5,000 Mexican-Americans were murdered between 1910 and 1920 through legal and extra-legal channels. Again, a lot of that extra-legal channels are lynching. At least one scholar is convincingly arguing that the Mexican-American civil rights movement grew out of the fight against lynching of Mexican-Americans in the late uh, 1910s. Now, a similar story can be told about African-Americans from 1877, uh, African-Americans with respect to the origins of the civil rights uh, uh, movement and the anti-lynching campaign. So just a little data before I close. Right? From 1877 to 1950, there were over 4,000 lynchings of African-Americans. Approximately 80% of those occurred in the former Confederacy. Okay? So we see the parallels there. So viable solutions. Um, to be honest, I don't think anything will work short of abolition of the death penalty. Now I'll close with a quote from... Right? This technocratic thought, we could fix it through better procedures, better techniques. It hasn't worked for 46 years. So why would we expect to think it would work now? So again, I'll end with a quote some of you might have heard from Justice Harry Blackman, and I believe this fully. From this day forward, I shall no longer tinker with the machinery of death. Right? It's not simply a matter of inadequate substantive and procedural protections. The problem is that the inevitability of factual, legal, and moral error gives us a system that we know must wrongly kill some defendants, a system that fares to de- uh, excuse me, fails to deliver the fair, consistent, and reliable sentences of death required by the Constitution. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.